Hi there, and welcome back. Today, I have two very special guests who are going to be telling their stories. This two part episode that will continue next week is one that is full of institutional betrayal and systemic failure after experiencing sexual violence, sexual harassment, and discrimination. This week, we'll hear their stories and their experiences with Title IX. Next week, we'll hear about their extremely chaotic legal experiences. And while the stories make your blood boil, here are the two courageous women. So, thanks so much for having us. My name is Arifa. I'm a human rights advocate. I spend my spare time uh, keeping up with human rights related issues and have greatly enjoyed providing advocacy and support for uh, survivors of domestic and sexual violence. I'm a rape survivor myself. Uh, my name is Saida. I am Aretha's older sister. I've been a staunch supporter of hers for the past, well, essentially for, the, for her entire life. Um, I have pretty much the same interests as Aretha. She and I are both very much interest, interested in civil and human rights issues. And like Aretha, I am a Muslim American. And like I mentioned, Arifa's petition with her backstory of what had happened to her was really what got us talking and connected and able to talk to each other today. So I asked her to talk a little bit about her experience with discrimination and sexual violence. I was targeted on the basis of my gender and religion by a former co-worker named Chester Brown. Um, Brown was fixated on my hijab and um, wanted to see me without it on. He made multiple unwel uh, unwelcome comments about my hijab that were of a sexual nature. Um, after claiming he was only joking about the unwanted comments, he insisted that I could trust him and that I didn't have anything to worry about. Um, but after gaining my trust, he lured me into a dark, uh, secluded area on the campus farm at Mount San Antonio College, and he raped me on December 12, 2013. Um, before and after he raped me, Brown continued to demand that I take my hijab off, um, and it was for his sexual gratification. Um, and he repeatedly fetishized my right to wear hijab and continued to do so even after I told him to stop. His behavior was um, specifically directed at me. Um, but before he targeted me, he also made um, sexually harassing comments towards my sister, who also wore hijab. Yeah, and to that end, I can speak to his behavior and the environment in that area. When I was an employee, a student employee at Mount San Antonio College, um, there had been several instances of sexual harassment that I had reported. And I told my supervisors that it's common for women in the workplace to be sexual, sexually harassed. And one of the cases that I had reported was a repeat offender. Uh, with the case with Chester Brown, he had made sexually harassing comments towards me too, also having to do with my hijab. He was a coworker of mine at the time um, in the facility known as the T-Mark. It's known as the Transfer Math Resource Center. Um, on this particular day, I was wearing a floral, floral pattern hijab and Brown looked at me and said, are you trying to seduce me, Tayaba? At the time, I went by the name Tayaba. Um, so... When I demanded to know what he was talking about, he continued to elaborate. He said that you're wearing flowers, referring to my hijab. Uh, there was another instance where Brown had specifically referred to himself as Chester the Molester. And the strange thing about this was that the discussion came about because of my name. People had difficulty remembering my name. They didn't know how to pronounce my name Tayaba. And I told them 
you know, one way to remember my name is that it rhymes with the Spanish word guayaba, tayaba guayaba. And that's when Chester chimed in and he said, oh, well, my name rhymes with the word molester. That's who I am. I'm Chester the molester. And it was notable because I was the only person there who called Chester out. I was the only woman there who called Chester out. Um, all the other people who were around that area, they were men and they just laughed it off. And I looked at Chester and I told him that's not good, right? That's not a good thing. He just got up and he walked, walked away. But, you know, relative to Arifa's experience, looking back, it was very clear that there was already this environment there that was hostile toward women. And those of us who did try to do something to stand up, we were shut down. Right. I'd reported already before this experience with Chester, I'd reported that it was common. And we had meetings, we had meetings that included everybody, like all of the employees. And we were told what to do, what the procedure was, and that supervisors needed to take a more active role in preventing this. But obviously there were failures on the part of the supervisors in supervising their employees and preventing that kind of behavior. Absolutely. And I'm so sorry to hear that each of you have had these different experiences that are all very central to some of the same, like similar themes in between you. And I'm curious about the reporting process. So you mentioned that you, you had tried to report this person. Um, It sounds like you had tried to report a lot of, a lot of other incidents that also would fall under violations of, um, like harassment and Title IX violations, workplace harassment, and like, correct me if I'm wrong in any of that. But um, to the to that end, what was the what was the reporting process like for you? In the sense that, like, how was it for you to go through it? And also, what kinds of what were what was like the procedure that they had you do for these reporting processes? So I can speak on my behalf. This is Sayida speaking. Um, When I was sexually harassed the first time around by this repeat offender, I was actually the second person to have complained. And I was told that nothing is done the first time someone complains, only it's actionable after the second complaint. Wow. Yeah. Process the process is that we have to, we have multiple people, they may not hold the official title of a supervisor, but they have the authority of a supervisor, meaning like they're sort of like, you could think of it as a mandated reporter, right? So if something comes to their attention, they have to relay it to somebody above them. And then that person has to relay it to somebody above them. And it goes, you know, further up the, the, the ladder, so to speak. And so I went to the person who had immediate authority above me, which is the procedure. And I was told by that person um, that nothing is done the first time someone reports a sexual harassment incident and that it's only actionable the second time because the second time is what indicates a history. And that first person that I reported to shuffled me over to the director of the tutorial services who corroborated that that was the procedure, that that's what HR had told her what the procedure was, that nothing is done the first time, it's only actionable the second time because the second time is what establishes history. Wow, that's in, that's horrible. And did they make any mention of if that's the same case, like if multiple people were to come forward about one person at the same time? Or no, nope. I'm, I'm just kind of curious about nope. their so, logic there. It's so <laughs> frustrating, you know. So, so Arifa will tell you 
just how deeply frustrating this whole procedure was. I can only give you like a surface level of it. Um, in the case of my having been sexually harassed, even after I reported it, I was given avenues to um, sort of safeguard my own safety. And one of those avenues was to get up, physically get up from the workplace and I can leave and excuse myself to some other area to avoid this person. I'm allowed to do that. And I, you know, I took that as my right and I acted out on it because this person would come in and out of the workplace, even after I reported this person. And in the time it took for them, for them to tell this guy to knock it off, it was about two weeks. In that time, he followed me to the other area where I was working and demanded to know why I was working there. Um, and he said that I want, he wanted me in the other area. And I kept telling him, you know, this is where I work. This is where I work. So there is this constant exposure to sexual harassment and it takes time for them to even do something, right? They didn't really have a procedure. That was something that I caught on to. They don't have a legitimate procedure. And I think the further we go into Arifa's case, you will see them even admitting that they don't have a procedure and you'll see just how screwed up the logic is. They don't have one. They just don't have one. If this is sounding frustratingly familiar, you might be having flashbacks to season one, episodes 12 and 13. There are so many reasons why universities and workplaces are so ill-equipped to handle any kind of sexual harassment or discrimination or sexual violence claim. And unfortunately, they're not really looking out for anybody's interests but their own. Not having a clear procedure is an especially simple way to be able to brush off these things, not have to report them, and not have to follow through with any kind of consequences for the individual being reported. And of course, their experiences didn't end there. So... As far as the surface level of the procedure that I had experienced, that was that was essentially the gist of it. And then we had this thing that was called an all-tutor meeting, right? Once I indicated to my, my, my bosses that sexual harassment in the workplace is common and that there needs to be more active supervision, we had this thing called an all-tutor meeting where all of the tutors, all of the employees meet. And in that meeting, the director of the tutoring services pointed to one of the other supervisors and said, well, if something like that happens, right, go to this other supervisor, report it to the other supervisor, report it to the other supervisor. She just kept pointing to that other supervisor, you know, and she said she sort of reiterated her trust in the process. And she said that, you know, I firmly believe that this is not common. But if it does happen, go to John. John was the other supervisor's name. And um, she did say that, she did say that, you know, those of us, those of them who were in positions of authority do have a responsibility to be more active. And she sort of, again, hedged her trust into their authority in doing their job, but there was just a complete failure. And that failure showed out when Chester Brown had harassed me because in that incident where he told me that I was seducing him, um, the person who was responsible for monitoring the, the math tutoring facility, she was there. She witnessed it all. She witnessed the entire incident and she did absolutely nothing. She did nothing. And I, you know, was looking at her expectantly to just intervene. Um, but it was clear she wasn't going to do anything. And I had already, before this incident, before Chester Brown had harassed me, 
I'd already reported several other incidences and I just got really fed up and tired. And that left me feeling like I just was better off, you know, finding my own informal way of dealing with this nonsense because nobody else was going to do anything. And in the one time where I tried to do something, I was still harassed. I was still bothered, right? Because of so much delay, because of the lack of the procedure, because of the lack of follow through, and because of just this lack of, you know, accountability. There wasn't any formal accountability. And I ended up feeling like I needed to just find some informal way of dealing with this nonsense, which is what I ended up doing. You know, and then Aretha, Aretha's story, I'm going to go ahead and, you know, give Aretha the opportunity to share what happened to her. She can give you a lot more detail as to what this procedure really looked like. This is Aretha. Um, the reporting process for me was just flat out dehumanizing and discriminatory. Um, Mount San Antonio College chose not to investigate fairly. Uh, the Title IX coordinator demanded that I reenact the rape that Chester Brown committed against me on her note taker, despite knowing that I was traumatized. And she admits under oath that, you know, uh, the behaviors that I was exhibiting um, were consistent with, you know, um, that of somebody who was traumatized. Um, you know, uh, Jones claimed that my credibility would be questioned if I didn't comply. They failed to interview my witnesses, but interviewed people who admitted to having a favorable bias for uh, Brown. I gave them everything I had and made myself available, but they falsely accused me of being uncooperative in their administrative review letter. A Brown even failed to avail himself for some time after I issued the complaint against him. Um, in addition, they failed to question Brown's credibility when he was withholding evidence and gave shifting accounts, which gradually described in greater detail a sexual assault. Um, college defendants admitted under oath that they failed to review Brown's shifting accounts of what he did to me. Um, to the Title IX officer, Brown admitted to forcing himself on me. He admitted um, he did not have my consent but uh, claimed that he, you know, only gave me a bear hug that lasted no longer than 60 seconds. Uh, but then to public safety, he, you know, added that he rubbed my back and put his hands on my waist uh, without my consent and, you know, wiggled against me. Um, to police officers, he, you know, later says that he shook me. Um, in depositions, he lied under oath and claimed that I, you know, willingly put my hands on him, which directly contradicted his prior claims. You know, he first admitted that it was non-consensual. Then he, you know, lies again and implies that I willingly reciprocated his unwanted behavior. Um, I demanded multiple times that the college extend the investigation until my witnesses were interviewed, including my sister you know, who had experienced sexual harassment by the same individual who'd go on to sexually harass me on the basis of my gender and religion and rape me. Um, they agreed they would, but in the end, they lied and closed their investigation into my complaint without, you know, interviewing people like my sister. Um, and they, you know, some of them later uh, admitted under oath that they prematurely closed the investigation into my complaint when they shouldn't have. You know, and to that, I wanted to add, I'm very familiar with Aretha's case and I read their 
their investigative letter, they admit in the letter that they had no procedure in trying to figure out or call out uh, the truth, essentially. They had no procedure. They had nothing in place. They admit that in the letter. And I remember bringing that to Aretha's attention. And Aretha, what was your response to that when you found out that they had no procedure? They admitted they had no procedure. What did you think of that? Well, that was a clear violation of Title IX in my view. And um, in general, a, a violation of survivors' rights, complainants' rights. Um, while you're there defending, you know, these people who go on to commit, you know, heinous crimes against victims, you have no, you know, fairness. First of all, you don't have fairness in the procedure that you are implementing. And um, the so-called procedure itself isn't much of a procedure. It's not much of a procedure, right? They admitted they didn't have a procedure in their administrative review. And then that later, you know, segues into just how much of a kind of a horse show the legal process was too. All of this is nothing short of horrifying and wrong and unfortunately all too familiar. But even still, what I heard next completely took me aback. I asked them about the differences or similarities in their reporting process, and it was shocking. On on my end, um, nothing I reported ever went as far as reaching the Title IX office. It sort of just stopped at the sort of student, student life office. That's where it stopped. Um, so there isn't so much... There isn't much that I could say as far as the, you know, the more in-depth details that Aretha, for example, could provide, but just sort of being on the end of sort of the observational end of what Aretha was going through um, as a witness, it was frustrating because I was told, right? Aretha told me to expect an email as a witness and I had relevant information Um, and I did expect the procedure to be fair. I expected them to reach out to me and I expected them to, to jot down or to listen to my testimony, which was relevant to what happened to Aretha. This individual had a history of making sexually harassing remarks and over-sexualized remarks about women in general, but about Muslim women specifically, right? And it wasn't just him. It was some of his friends who said some very objectifying things about Muslim women too, that he'd hang around. And I was aware of these things and, you know, I wasn't called forward as a witness. Instead, what do they do? They go and they interview people who had favorable biases towards him. And I don't see how any of that is fair. Right. I just didn't understand any of it. It was frustrating. And it was even more frustrating to see what the effects of it were on Aretha because I, you know, I live with Aretha. Aretha is my sister. I don't, I I don't have any words to put into, you know, I don't have any words to, to really capture just the severity of the situation that Aretha was going through. But, you know, I can tell you that it was just, it was just upsetting. It was just deeply upsetting. I had information that was relevant to the case and they sort of just watered me and my testimony down to being Aretha's sister, right? They said that they don't interview people who only provide character character witnesses or who would be a character witness. And I wasn't a character witness. I was a witness who had relevant information. 
Um, but what they end up doing is they end up interviewing people who essentially act as character witnesses, right? They interviewed people who had favorable biases towards Brown. So it was just a complete mess. And this is all so crazy to me and infuriating to me because we talked a little bit after that about how on a federal level, if a school already is aware that somebody is a perpetrator or has been reported before or has had a finding against them before, it leaves the door open for a university or workplace to be sued much more easily than it does if they're just to, you know, take care of the issue in the first place. And then there's also the whole conversation about why don't, why don't universities want to make their workplaces safer in the first place? And I think a lot of what came up when we were talking in this conversation was the ignorance. Um, but it's kind of hard to believe at this point that that's you still you have to be willfully ignorant at this point. There's so much information, there's so much awareness, and there are just people who will not change their mind and will not believe that workplace harassment and discrimination is so incredibly common. And this willful ignorance and negligence is what fails survivors. With Brown, before I didn't even See, the thing is, I hadn't reported Brown because by that time, I'd already raised the awareness to all my supervisors that it's common for women in the workplace to be harassed. And I rightfully expected, in my view, that the supervisors would actually intervene. And by the time Brown had continued to, you know, say dumb things to me and say sexually offensive things to me, I just opted to just sort of divorce myself from engaging with him engaging with him, engaging with people in that workplace. And I cut myself off emotionally. I remember that very clearly. I just cut myself off emotionally because I didn't feel like anybody was doing anything. And that was one of the more frustrating things. It was just like, how much, how much of my time do I have to take to constantly just report all of these people when I've told you already twice, three times that it's common for women in the workplace to be harassed. It's easier for you to do your jobs properly and to supervise rather than to just depend on me to constantly report the people who've harassed me. Because if I had to report everybody who harassed me, that'd be a lot of people. That would have been a lot of people, right? And it wasn't just, for me, it was friends who'd experienced this too. Friends who'd experienced harassment um, in the workplace from other people who'd confided in me. Um, it just, the whole thing was just frustrating, right? It's like, do your job. Just do your job. You have a responsibility. Do your job. You know, what? That's the other thing that I just never really understood about um, college procedure. It's like so much of the responsibility is put on the shoulders of these, of, of people like you and myself and Arifa survivors, right? To just report and report and report. Well, good heavens. Why can't you just be more active? Like, why can't you just be more active in implementing your role as a supervisor or as an authority figure? Why can't you be more active? What the heck is the holdup? Exactly. And it's it's so incredibly frustrating to be caught in that holding pattern. And it's it's I think it just it gets to the point where it's almost like intentionally disempowering, right? Because you're you are as a survivor going back over and over and over again and putting yourself through these like, like unjustly putting yourself through these like really traumatic conversations and these really just frustrating things time and time and time again um, for the hope that it will 
you know, bring accountability a lot of times for, for you, for other people in your workplace and like to protect others and just to, to hold, to hold your institution to the standard that they claim to operate at. And I think it gets so incredibly frustrating and just like demoralizing and dehumanizing over time because they don't, they don't take into consideration, like they don't take into the consideration the impact that it has on you. And I think it's so frustrating that institutions are so, they just look inward and are concerned with protecting themselves without understanding that by protecting the people that they're supposed to protect (laughs) who are coming forward and asking for protection, ultimately they would have a safer campus or a safer workplace. And that's something that has just been like mind blowing to me. And like, in terms of that, um, with with each of you speaking out about this and especially with Arifa's case, what kind of what kind of things have you done to help hold um, this institution accountable and what kind of status is that in right now? Sure. So some of the things um, that were done um, included first publicly speaking out um, against Mount San Antonio College and on what uh, Chester Brown did to me, the rape that he committed against me. Um, so I came out publicly in April of 2015, um, and thereafter there was um, also a protest that happened on campus where um, students on the ground had uh, helped to organize to protest against uh, rape and sexual assault and to demand the removal of Brown and um, the uh employees who had a hand um, or who took part in my complaint and who failed me. Um, In addition, I also, when I found public initially, I uh, announced that I would be suing the college and the rapist. We've talked a lot on this podcast before about how big of a decision it is to go public with your story in any capacity at all, whether that's just telling it to somebody else or naming the person who raped you, naming the institutions that have harmed you, or just talking about your story, even without naming anybody. It's a really big deal. And by the time you get to that point, it can be extremely, you can be so drained. Everything in that process is so extremely draining. So we talked a little bit about what it was like and what went into that decision of going public at this point in time after already doing so much and hitting so many hurdles. To me, I felt like I had no other option but to appeal to the public because institutions had failed me. And, you know, I understand that where institutions are subject to these, you know, flaws and these failures, um, oftentimes it is, you know, been civil society that has you know, the civil society that exists beyond um, these institutions that then comes together uh, in the interests of justice and in the interests of what is right by those who have historically been wronged um, by these institutions. In this context, it would be, you know, assault survivors, um, disproportionately women who tend to be affected by it, and, you know, women are considered a marginalized identity. Um, that I, I felt it was the logical thing to do um, because um, after Brown had sexually assaulted me, he had communicated that he had done to me um, what he had done to me, he had done to others. And um, so I just felt an obligation 
as well as, you know, just outrage for what had happened to me. And, um, that I, you know, I just wanted to hold him accountable and generate awareness. And it was just those two driving factors that, you know, um, where I felt that I was doing the right thing. Absolutely. And it's such a courageous thing to do and takes so much to do after you've already been, you know, fighting for so long. Um, and just coming up against all these different walls. And so what has the response been like since you've um, come forward publicly and announced that you would be um, suing these people? And what what has that been like for you? So I, you know, uh, in the aftermath of going public, I, uh, for the most part, I was receiving a lot of support. I also made it a point to not pay attention to what people were saying about me on social media, because I know that survivors deal with a lot of victim blaming and, you know, all these horrible things that nobody should have to go through after suffering such a horrific, you know, incident. So I just made it a point to remind myself not to pay so much attention to what's going on in social media and just to just stay focused on my studies and try to, you know, try to succeed at, at UC Berkeley. Because I was a student there while um, when I uh, when I had gone public, um, so you know there was overwhelming support, uh, but there were also you know the the camp of victim blaming trolls that you know sit there and insist on reinforcing um, prejudices against victims of sexual assault um, that were concerning, but. You know, at the end of the day, I just reminded myself that you know, I'm a witness to my experience. You know, these naysayers aren't. Um, so, you know, it was it was empowering and I was grateful and I have been grateful for the support that I've received. You know, but we we still have a long way to go um, to gain justice institutionally. Certainly. I was also curious if they faced any retaliation or retribution from the university or from anyone else, as is so incredibly common, any of the people who were directly involved that they were speaking out against. I think my sister, didn't she get like this weird letter from the college? Yeah. Yeah. So in the immediate aftermath of my sister coming forward, um, I'd gone down to Mount Sac to demand what was happening with my sister's case. And what happened with my sister's case. And they found that that was threatening. They thought that that was threatening. And so they ended up sending me a letter saying that, <laughs> that they're going to uh, hold some kind of a hearing as to whether or not I'd be expelled. I'd be expelled from the campus for uh, essentially making someone feel threatened when I didn't do any of that. But this was in the immediate aftermath. Oh my gosh. Yeah, <laughs> That's, I'm like, probably shouldn't be shocked. But there are a few things that shock me now, but oh my gosh, that shocks me. Yeah. So, so yeah, um, I was also active in the protest, you know, the protest movement that supported Aretha. Um, in that movement, I was also witness to the fact that there are other people who came out and 
said to Aretha, to me and Aretha, that what she had gone through, they had gone through the same people and the same process and it had failed them too. And yeah, this is what, this is what we had, this is what we had dealt with. This is exactly what we had dealt with, particularly Aretha. You know, she wasn't the only one. Yes, there was some retaliation. Yes, there's, there was, there's just a lot of, I don't know what the right word would be. Um, negligence is, doesn't really capture just the level of stupidity that I felt like I was dealing with and that Aretha was dealing with. But there was just a lot of just, I don't know what the right word would be. What, what would you say would be like an extreme like an extreme form of stupidity or I don't, I don't know, <laughs> but there was a lot of that going on. There's yeah. a lot of that going on. <laughs> I hear you. I kind of like refer to it in my own mind as like hostile incompetence. <laughs> yes, that's that. <laughs> I don't know if that sums it up the same way you yes. would. <laughs> Certainly malicious incompetence. Like you're that dumb. Like you're that, you're that blind facts of the situation into the history of everything that was done there that you you get the wrong people. Like seriously, mm-hmm. that was the situation. It was just, it was a complete mess. It was a mess. And a further mess, their experiences going through the legal process. Arifa's story is so incredibly heartbreaking. She has been so persistent and her courage and her sister's support and her sister's courage are so inspiring. So be sure to tune in next week to see in here the second part of what they have been through so far and what they're still continuing to go through and what you can do to help as well. We'll also be talking a little bit more about what anybody can do to be a further ally to not only survivors, but survivors of color. And in the meantime, please find Arifa's change.org petition and please sign it. After you read it, you will be blown away by the contents of everything that happened. So thanks for listening and I'll see you guys next week.